How's your teaching calling going? Have you ever asked a question during the second hour and suddenly everyone is looking at the carpet in silence? There are proven methods to stimulate class discussion that work like a charm. David Farmsworth does a masterful job presenting on this very subject in the Teaching Saints virtual library. What questions get people talking? How can you effectively listen to the answer they're saying without being distracted of where you want to take the class next? These are crucial principles to consider, especially in this time of Come Follow Me Sunday School. You can watch David Farnsworth's presentation by visiting leadingsaints.org slash 14. There, you can gain free access for 14 days to the Teaching Saints Virtual Library, where you'll find hours and hours of content to help you be a better prepared Sunday teacher. Before we jump into the content of this episode, I kind of feel it's important that I introduce myself. Now, many of you have been around a long time. You're well familiar with my voice and with Leading Saints as an organization. But if you're not, well, my name is Kurt Frankham, and I am the executive director of Leading Saints and the podcast host. Now, Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through, well, content creation like this podcast and many other resources at leadingsaints.org. And uh, we don't act like we have all the answers or know exactly what a leader should do or not do, but we like to explore the concepts of leadership, the science of leadership, what people are researching about leadership, and see how we can apply them to a Latter-day Saint world. So here we go. You know, we get all sorts of type of guests on the Leading Saints podcast. I love the diversity. I love the the different perspectives and life experiences. And every once in a while, I love getting these academic guys, these guys who have written the books. They've been, you know, elbow deep in all the research of leadership. They've taught at the colleges. They've gotten the MBAs. And Gary Laney is one of those people. A big shout out to Terry Lloyd, who uh, recommended I connect with Gary. And that led to this interview. Uh, Terry's been a good friend via email. We've met up once before. And uh, there's a handful of you out there, more than a handful, but of individuals, I sort of feel like I, we're friends, even though we've only emailed back and forth. And Terry's one of those. I really appreciate Terry's support and recommending a guest like Gary. So Gary is a CEO, a serial entrepreneur, has started tons of businesses, has gotten a triple major MBA from Northwestern Kellogg. He does a lot of speaking, consulting. He's written a book called The Power of Strategic Influence. And so we uh, wander around his research and his book and find principles that apply really well to the church leadership realm, and it leads to a great discussion. So here is my interview with Gary Laney, the author of The Power of Strategic Influence. Gary Laney, welcome to the Leading Saints podcast. Hey, thank you so much, Kurt. It's nice to have gotten to know you and, and finally be on your show. So thanks for the invitation. Yeah. And uh, in some of our prep here, you you talk about you've had some interesting interactions or mentorship from some people early on in your career, like Stephen Covey, President Monson and President Ballard. What, what's the story there? I probably should start with Stephen Schallenberger because Stephen, you know, Stephen. Oh, yes. Yeah. He's a former uh, guest. So. so I went to work for him as a college student and that was probably my first foray, first introduction, you know, to uh, influential people. Even though I'd, I'd met, you know, people in the church that were influential, but Stephen Covey I'd never met before. He'd been a professor of mine. I'd read his book in my, on my mission called uh, Spiritual Roots of Human Relations. And most people don't know that book was kind of the pre- precursor to Seven Habits. There's some of the same illustrations mm-hmm. in both books. But so during my 
you know, my stint with uh, Eagle, which, which ran the span of about 10 years, I started as a salesman and kind of worked up in the ranks to district manager, regional manager, district, I mean, area sales director, and then became a VP of sales. And in the, in the process of raising, you know, kind of raising in the ranks, uh, I got to know all these amazing people, including, you know, President Thomas Monson, who in very small kind of management fireside, back when the church was kind of supportive of that, you know, in Lake Tahoe and some places, you know, just a little fireside, real fireside you know, with real fire. <laughs> Had some great, amazing experiences learning uh, things about him. Uh, Stephen Covey, uh, you know, from Scholastic at BYU to to advisory role and to learning about his book, which hadn't been published yet. Stephen Havison get published until 1989. I met him in 1979. And so my salespeople, Stephen Schellenberger's salespeople, became kind of the guinea pigs for those concepts. I remember him saying, hey, I want to share some concepts with you, some habits. You know, we had no idea where I was going to go, but it became <laughs> famous for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of what that ha- happened. And and I met other great people you may not have heard before, like Bill Jones and Lael Woodbury, who was the Dean of Fine Arts at BYU. Some amazing people. So it was yeah. a great experience those 10 years. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, maybe the, if you're under 30 and maybe under 40, you don't realize that back in the day, you know, apostles and general authorities, they could like sit on boards of directors. Yeah, board of board of advisor. Yeah. yeah, they yeah. did. For different companies, right? For-profit companies. That was maybe a, an additional way that they helped sustain their their mission as an apostle, right? Yeah, it's really true. And, you know, and Thomas Monson was amazing because he started as an apostle, you know, then became prophet. But the days of him being involved were spectacular. He didn't just come one time. He came to many of our management re- retreats and I got to know his wife a little bit. It was just a remarkable experience. Same thing, Stephen Covey, you know, for 10 years, I mean, very, very involved with him in a lot of ways to the point where he became a mentor, you know, of mine and, and very helpful to me, you know, kind of structuring my career and my life. So yeah, it, it was a different Different time back then. Yeah. You know, just from a Latter-day Saint leadership standpoint, I don't think we sometimes emphasize enough just the impact that Stephen Covey has, even even today, of his thought, the mentorship he gave to so many people. Even on this podcast, we've had numerous people who were who were mentored by him, either through working for him with his companies. We've had his, you know, Stephen M. R. Covey on a couple of times, you know, that these individuals that still perpetuate really solid leadership principles throughout the world and in the church, yeah. uh, even though Stephen Covey's passed on and, you know, but his influence just carries on. No, it, it doesn't surprise me you say that because uh, he, everywhere he went, he made people think and contemplate, you know, what he was talking about. He's a very deep individual with an amazing smile you know, yeah. that drew people into him. He, you could be in his presence. You should be intimidated, but you weren't, right? I mean, he was just yeah. that kind of a person. That's cool. So any, I mean, any specific principles or, or concepts that you learned from any of those those men that you mentioned that uh, would be worth mentioning in this in this context? Oh, I don't think we have enough time. <laughs> To go through all that, but Stephen Covey, I mean, just his life, his example, I mean, the, the way he looked at life and the way he wanted to contribute from the very beginning. He was a mission president when he was like 26, 28. I forget what his age yeah. was exactly. A bishop when he was like 22. <laughs> I don't know. And Thomas Monson kind of the same thing, a stake president when he was like 30, 31. I don't know the exact year, but he's very close to that kind of thing. So the way they exemplified, they just, you know, led from the beginning. They just had that capacity to do that. Just remarkable. I mean, Stephen Covey with his habits, I mean, there are a few of my favorites that are, you know, begin with the other in mind is probably my most favorite because it's all about how you think about the future so you can prepare and do the best possible job. And, and along the way, what I've learned from him, obviously, are, you know, how do you develop relationships? Of course, he talks about win-win. On a meaningful basis, you know, that's 
When I first read the book, Spiritual Roots of Human Relations, then I took him as a professor for organizational behavior class. It was an option at BYU. Didn't know if I could get into his class with like 400 you know, people trying to get in there. Thousands wanted to be in there. And he was like the first Donahue. I mean, he could go out, he could just relate and make eye contact and connect with you on a personal basis. And then later I got a chance to know him on a one-on-one basis, which was remarkable. But, you know, Thomas Monson, I, I have favorite uh, sayings. I, there was a favorite poem that he used to give. I don't, I, they always put anonymous on it, but I don't know if he helped write it. It's called Stick to Your Task. Have you heard that poem before? I haven't. Uh-uh. If I don't blame memory, because I used to give it to every salesperson I ever taught. So stick to your task till it sticks to you. Beginners are many, but enders are few. Honor, power, place, and praise will always come to the one who stays. So stick to your task till it sticks to you. Bend at it, wet at it, and smile at it too. For out of the bend and the sweat and the smile will come life's victories after a while. Mm. I've known that since 1980, 81. I've recited it many times. It just, and I hadn't even thought about it until you invited me on this show and, and it just came right back to me. It's just such a great call. Yeah. And, and is there any, like, I don't know if there's personal experience that come to mind or, or as you're, you know, leading groups of people, like wh- where do you see that principle so m- most needed or cause, cause it is, you know, there's some, maybe you get apathetic towards a certain task or it becomes, you know, so routine. Sometimes you lose that stick to if that's a, a word we're going to use. <laughs> well, it's all, you know, for me, it's about finishing something you started. So start mm-hmm. with Stephen Covey's begin with the end in mind. Before you even begin, you have a perspective, you know, and I could, I'm going to talk about perspectives and things in my book, which are kind of extrapolates, extrapolations from things I learned from Stephen Covey and Thomas Monson, Lael Woodbury, all these great individuals. But I grew up in, a, in an environment, I grew up in a family business where the entire family worked in this retail business. My mom would work there half day, then go home and do all the things she had to do as a mom. She's an incredible mom. But my dad taught us that when you start something, you finish it. You don't begin something and then cut out. You just don't do that. And I, that was the nature of my learning from the time I was just a, little, a little kid. I would come from elementary school to my dad's store. I didn't go home. And I, he would give me tasks of things to do. And in the beginning, he'd give me a list. And I, would, I got a little smart and thought I could work through this really fast and I could go home sooner. <laughs> and then I didn't realize my dad would give me a second list and a third list. So I decided I'm going to do this list really well and then hope that it was good enough that he would say, go home. Thank you for your help. And so from the time I was a kid, you know, learning those tasks, the importance of doing things well, you know, my dad would always say, if you're going to do something, do it well. You know, there's no reason to start something. There's no reason to do something unless you're going to do it well. And he was, he was a great example of that. He was a, he was a businessman, not as much of a spiritual man until maybe later in his life. But, and my mom was kind of filled the gap, but a really remarkable man that taught me about honesty, which is that integrity part, doing things right, doing it well, and finishing it. That's the integrity of what you really you know, exemplify as a person. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about, the, you wrote a book called Strategic Influence. I should have talked to you first because you have some good names. <laughs> hey, well, I better go buy that domain name so you don't- do I, I'm going to show it to you. So it, it's called okay. The Power oh, okay. Strategic Influence. So it's all about influence. So Steve McCovey taught me what you know, influence was about. And I extended those principles over about a 35-year period teaching the seven habits, but then coming up with practical ways to apply them. Stephen had, he's very theoretical and he would be, get practical in a live session, but his book, his, his book wasn't so much. So I had to figure out how do I make this practical so that it actually can be used, it can actually help the performance of the people that I managed. And so over those 35 years, I extended the principles. I came up with my own, uh, what I call spheres of influence, six of them. Stephen talked about circles. I like spheres better because it's three-dimensional. It's all-encompassing. You can step into a circle and step out of it. I know you didn't think of it that way, but for me, it was kind of that way. Um, 
I want it to be something you're committed to. And especially in relationships where you're looking at each other on a three-dimensional way that looks in the future, again, back to Stephen's uh, principles. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm curious, you know, with this, the word influence, especially in 2023, when we're recording this, you know, we live in the age of the influencer, right? And uh, so sometimes we lose meaning in these words because they become too cliche or whatnot. And so when you talk about influence as a leader, like what else can we unpack there? So I'm going to distinguish the reason I put, when I first started this book, I was calling it the power of influence. And I just didn't feel like there was enough distinction in that name for people to understand what I was trying to teach. Because social media influence, influencers are out there on a one-time basis many times, very transactional versus relationship or future or strategic-minded. So strategic to me means, oh, okay, just like that task we're talking about, I'm not just meeting you for one experience. If we have a connection, if there's chemistry be- between us, if there's a reason why we should be you know, working together to help us on that win-win basis, there ought to be strategic. It means there should be purpose on my side and your side, mm. where we feel like together, if you integrate the two, we have something that could become remarkable together. And so when I, I don't know about you, but when I connect with people today, I have a profile of people that are type of a person, not specific people, maybe sometimes, but a profile of the type of person I want to connect with that I think I can give value to and they can reciprocate. So strategic to me means I am going to do things in a way that's actually meaningful, that's fitted, that has potential and future attached to it. And so then as you become a leader and you're, and today this, you know, this concept of servant leadership, which I'd love to talk about, but is that, you know, I really care about providing value to you and I'm trying not to be calculated about it. I want to be able to provide something that's, that's meaningful to you. I'm going to give to you. And if it makes sense, it'll reciprocate to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to focus on the giving part, not be so calculated on the receiving part. And I've done that throughout my life, starting with, you know, the people that, that really trained me, my mother, my father, my admission president, you know, great people, my brother, and then on to people like Stephen Covey, Thomas Monson, uh, Gordon B. Hinckley was an amazing uh, example to me. He, he came to our mission. I got to look at him eye to eye for about two minutes as he met every mission, missionary in my mission, which I thought was remarkable. He took the time to do that, took hours. So to me, it's all about developing relationships that give you that where you can make impact and, and add value, which creates influence because people then trust you, they like you, they want to follow you for the right reasons, not because you want to become a big influencer, because you want reputation or you want to become a narcissist. That's not at all <laughs> about what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the end all be all where I can maximize my potential as an individual. And that has a lot to do with how I treat people and how yeah. I help people solve problems really is what it's about. So if you were if you were coaching maybe a brand new bishop or elders quorum president or least society president to step into that cadence of leadership, like what, what does that look like on the ground for somebody in a, in a ward setting? So it has a lot to do with it because in church, you know, in our church, we teach uh, the importance of leadership. Start with becoming a teacher. How do you teach things so that people will learn, you know, the, the essence of it? I mean, Stephen Covey would say, if you want to learn this principle, go out and teach it to someone. I keep coming back to Stephen. Best thing you can do is teach a concept to someone and practice it and then teach it again or practice it and teach it again because then it'll, it'll become part of it. But in the church, sometimes people get into callings and, and I'm not being critical, but they don't think about what they're saying or doing and the people that are surrounding them because a lot of times there's lots of listening ears in the church. And you can not say, I'm not getting on the offensive part, but you can maybe say something you didn't mean to say because you didn't think about it ahead of time. So mm-hmm. beginning with that end in mind, 
you know, what do I want to accomplish? What do I want as a purpose for this meeting, for our relationship, for this teaching moment? If you can have some idea before you go into it and then ask the person, what do you want to get out of this? We don't do that a lot of time. We just jump into it, you know, ad hoc, very haphazard and blow our way through it because it's a volunteer position. Hmm. And I think that if you took a time and a moment, you know, to just think about what should I be relaying here? What should I be teaching? What's the end result of what I'm trying to get to? I think it'll be a better experience. I really do. And I've, I've experienced that as a word mission leader, as a gospel doctrine teacher, as a bishopric member many times, as a high priest group leader. I mean, I've, I've been fortunate to have had some, you know, really amazing colleagues. But the, 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 the moments I probably met, the, met the most of me where I was actually trying to befriend and to teach something of value to the person I was with and thinking about them as a person how it might be. And yeah. I haven't always done that, but, but I think it does make a difference. And I would imagine, I mean, just as I perceive it, it seems like that the administrative monster sort of eats all these principles up sometimes because, you know, the bishopric just needs to get the ward staffed, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and the, rarely is that And this, you know, I've been writing and thinking about this concept of the role of callings in a ward and Oftentimes, you know, the bishop comes to you with a calling that, hey, listen, this is what we came up with, yes or no. And we would really appreciate if you said yes, you know, but never is there sort of this dialogue of exploration with that member where they feel like they have a role in it. It's more of they're being acted upon by this calling and they got to say yes. And now that's their role in the, in the ward for, you know, six to three years or whatever. Yeah, I, I appreciate that perspective, Kurt, but I have had some experiences uh for example, a bishop I can think of in California that I served under as a word mission leader. He was, first of all, he, he and he'd been a sales management leader. Okay. Uh-huh. And I interviewed him from my book. His name is Gary Kennedy. So me <laughs> telling you too much, but he, he was an amazing person and an influencer to me as a bishop because hmm. number one, he took my interest at heart. And so we got together. He would ask me what I wanted to accomplish, what I wanted to do. And he was very supportive of it. And when something happened that was good, and we do this in sales a lot. A good sales leader would do this. Come back and give reinforcement and and you know give credence to what just happened and give uh, support and say that's remarkable that that just happened. You know how do we help that person now become a member of the church if that's possible? So you know that, I think that's critical. But I think you're right though that haphazard thing, which as we get busy and it's it's volunteer and we just show up and we haven't had any time to prepare, it's sometimes hard to you know, not you know do something that might not become as productive as you'd like. Yeah. Anyway, I, th- yeah. I think the leaders that do it will have a better experience. I had a stake president in California, different stake that uh, was amazing, that, that he was just so warm. He was so kind. He had such a great bedside manner. And he was a, he's an attorney. You don't expect that from an attorney. <laughs> but he was remarkable. I, you know, when I, I had an opportunity to meet with President Nelson one time because I was in the stake high council. And he asked me as a wonderful pensive, you know, thoughtful leader would be as, you know, who do you think should be the stake president? He didn't drill me and try to make me feel like I was being interviewed. I didn't feel like I was interviewed at all. He wanted my suggestion. He wanted my recommendation. And in the end, he took my recommendation, I guess. And I'm sure I'm not the only one that recommended this person (laughs) who became, uh, you know, the stake president and that wonderful guy that I'm talking about. But I so appreciated how President Nelson made me feel in his presence. It was remarkable. Yeah. I've never forgotten that experience. I've never, I was with him more on alone for 20 minutes and you're only supposed to be in those meetings for five minutes. And so everybody yeah. thought, was, are you, be, you know, I know I'm not the same press. <laughs> Grateful I wasn't, you know, but a re- remarkable thing that leaders can do if they take the time to use their heart and their spirit, you know, to do the right things. Yeah. What I'm learning from this and, and maybe, you know, it's something I've probably learned before and need to keep reminding myself of is that 
like influence, you know, it, it takes some work to really earn it, right? Because sometimes in a tradition that has a, a strong tradition on priesthood keys and authority, sometimes it's like, hey, I'm the bishop. They put my hand, their hands on my head. Like, here we go. Like, this is, yep. is what we're doing. When, But there's so much to gain for taking the time to sit down with people and look yep. at them eye to eye and really earn that influence. Well, so, so one of the things I talk about in my book toward the end is I say, first of all, the title of influencer cannot be self-proclaimed. Mm. Title of leader can't be self-proclaimed. Title of bishop can't be self-proclaimed. You can't stand up and I'm, you know, this authoritative person now because authority doesn't ring well with people. It's the warmth, it's the influence, the natural, the genuine attitude and actions of the person that makes you, draws you to them, right? That genuine, authentic feel. We talk about authenticity today. That's really a true concept if you really look into it. A lot of people use it very randomly. But yeah, I really believe that that influence is earned and it has to be earned. And it's bestowed, I say in my book, it's bestowed upon you by the people that really sense and see the leadership in you. And what they look for is what you're trying to do to help all of them. Mm-hmm. It's all about you. You know, I don't think that influence happens very well, personally. Yeah. And so anything else you'd add? I mean, because as far as and I'm thinking like if somebody wants to really aim for that influence and to, to earn that that title of influencer, I mean, you know, that one-to-one interaction with as many people that you lead as possible. Is there anything else that you generally coach people on as far as how to gain that influence? Well, this concept I'm going to share is is so simple. It doesn't sound like it should be deep at all, but it's, it's it really is. And that is just to give first. Hmm. That's from the beginning of my book. I, at the end, my last chapter is called Give Back. But what I really teach from the beginning is you should start to give back from the beginning before you have wealth. People think you have to have wealth to give back. You have to have amazing contacts to which do do help to you know make a difference in someone's life. But no, you're just your time, your attention, your ability to listen, and to maybe give a perspective to someone so they can even solve the problem themselves. If you can solve the problem quickly because you just can, why not do it? And then the person said, listen, in the future, here's some ideas you can do it yourself, but I'm taking care of this right now because I can see the anguish, I can see the distraught, I can see the frustration you have. I want to just take care of this for you just because I can. So I think that is where it really stems, you know, giving back, but giving first. I mean, Christ, we loved him because he loved us first, right? I mean, that's the whole premise that I've used, and not to get emotional here for a second, my mother, you know, taught me that. She's so kind to everybody. I mean, every day, wow, didn't expect this Kurt. Got me in a vulnerable <laughs> position. Hey, we don't, we don't mind <laughs> a don't little motion here. Podcast, <laughs> uh, but I don't get a chance to talk about the church very often. But my mother, oh my goodness, was uh, a remarkable person. I've never met probably a more kind person than she was. My dad was very charismatic and kind in his own way as a businessman. But my mother just from the beginning, you know, outset, she just, she waved everybody. I said, and I, Later in life, I said, did she really all know, know all those people? I'm sure she did not, even though a lot of people knew her. She didn't want someone to think that she didn't wave to them if she didn't recognize them because you know, those cars go past you pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, you, do I know them? Can I see them? She didn't ever worry about that. She'd wave first. Uh, she was always giving me stuff to take to the neighbors, always. Bread, your cookies, you know, peaches. So, yeah, miss that woman a lot. So, that's all I can say. Yeah. Well, and the, and the principle rings true, just that, you know, give first. And, and I, and I believe in that wholeheartedly. I also worry sometimes 
as leaders, especially in the church where, you know, this is a volunteer effort that we give almost overgive, right? And we sort of drain ourselves empty That's a good uh, because we've given so much and then we have nothing to offer anybody because it's all been given away, right? Is there any balance to that or anything come to mind? Well, I think that, yeah, I mean, you can be generous and if you have the means, those people like to do it. And I, I think it's very well received. But if that's all you do, I think that's not enough. Sounds like that's crazy, but because you're giving means, you're giving you know, monetary you know, help to people or gifts in, in their own right. But I, I really think it's the person you know, that stops and thinks, what does this person really need? What could I do? Even a small thing that might remind them, make them smile when they get down. And what could I do? And so, and I'll just share, this is taking me way back to my mission in 1976 to 78. That was a long time ago. <laughs> I heard a missionary one time say, you know, uh, was training me, you know, we should go in and focus on only making this a better day for them that, that had they not met us. So mm-hmm. yes, we have a lesson to teach. Yes, we would like to invite them to church. Yes, we'd like to be invited back. But let's just focus on making this a better day because they met us. That's it. And I've never forgotten that. And so for every door I knocked on from that point forward, I thought, okay, that's my only goal. I want to make this experience where they're happy I came by and not, you know, the straw because the missionaries knocked on their door, you know, <laughs> and now they're worried they're, there's obligations. We're going to come back. No, I don't want that. You know, I want them to feel happy that we came by. That's it. And I was able to connect with Catholic priests on my mission, had experiences with and and amazing people that never became members of the church, but I know that I, I helped them in a sense. Yeah. Every single yeah. time if I could. Oh, that's, that's such a great mindset, you know, for a leader, because it is easy to sort of get stuck to key indicators and goals and efforts. And, you know, Hey, we got to really motivate this group of people and I'm going to stand up in front of them one more time and remind them, Hey, we got to really double down here. But to walk into every scenario of like, no, I'm actually, I'm a giver. I'm a helper. I'm going to lift people up rather than bog them down with, with more, you know, reminders or, you know, cracking the whip or whatever it is. Well, I, lo- I love the lift bird you just said. That, I have yeah. a book back behind me written by Thomas Kuzmarski and his wife, Susan. And he's written eight books. He was my mentor at Northwest. I would be my, my MBA, Kellogg. And he, they wrote this book, not because this guy is a genius of marketing, but he and his wife wrote a book about lifting others hmm. because that's the kind of person he is. And he's been a friend of mine. Since, you know, since I did an internship for him in 1985. And I wasn't a remarkable employee, I don't think, you know, as a student, but he's been remarkable to me back and uh, lifted me so many times when he didn't have to respond to me because he's, he's kind of famous, this guy, especially in Chicago. So, yeah, I think that lift concept is, is just tremendous. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah, really good stuff. And you've touched on around this concept of servant leadership. I mean, that's essentially what we're talking about. Uh, what other caveat there are, have we not touched on? Well, so I thought servant leadership when I first heard it a few years ago, and that's kind of where it became popular. It really started in 1970 with a guy named uh, Greenleaf who wrote a book about it, and he called it the, the service of leader. And it became servant leadership leader. But it was really construed and developed as a concept back and by Lei Cha, Lao Cha, is a Chinese philosopher, I mean, uh, like 1,500 years ago. <laughs> oh, wow. Who talked about, i just tell, kind of rephrase the concept because I don't have the quote in front of me, but he basically said that the true leader is someone that is barely noticed. And the fruits of his labors as a leader, again, I'm just paraphrasing, 
are that people think they did it themselves. Hmm. He actually helped them, you know, accomplish something. He wanted to be invisible, but be a person that was guiding, directing. It goes back to that concept of facilitating. So I've, I've led many discussions. I've spoken at a lot of, you know, hundreds of places. But the best discussions, the best environment is where you have a facilitator who doesn't come in a lecture. They help bring out the ideas, the responses, the emotions of the people in the room as if the leader wasn't there, as if the facilitator didn't exist. Same mm-hmm. concept as Lao Chuck. So I think it's important because servant leadership means I don't, I'm not, it's not about me. I'm about helping others reach their potential, reach their goals, you know, accomplish what they need to. And as a leader, if they did that and they all feel proud of it and I could step away and it didn't matter, I mean, that would be, a, there's a lot of ego in leadership, right? So I think that's hard to do sometimes, but I think in the end, that's really what we're trying to do. Yeah. And even projecting that onto a church context, I'm just thinking, uh, you know, oftentimes, you know, I get an opportunity to speak a lot, uh, firesides and youth firesides and on cruise ships sometimes, you know, about gospel related things. And it's so easy to, you know, try and be as gregarious as possible and personable and, you know, put on a good show but I often sometimes remind myself before walking on that stage or standing behind that lectern that I hope that they forget about me and always remember Jesus, right? Like if we can not only be the leader yeah. that it's forgotten, but that also perpetuates Jesus and his message that he's remembered, then I think we've struck it that balance well, right? Well, that's a quick experience because it's, it's on my top, top of mind for me right now. I just got invited by the last person that I helped get baptized. I didn't, I said, I helped you baptize because I didn't baptize him, even though he <laughs> uh-huh. asked me to baptize him because I felt like leaving the mission, I should have someone in the war. It was a branch back then who, first of all, could have the experience of baptizing someone and then this person I, I had taught with my best friend. Well, he invited me to his 50th anniversary and I called my companion that you have to come. So oh, he's wow. trying to work it out so we can both go. And, and where'd you serve your mission? Where, sorry, in uh, Seville, Spain. Oh, okay. Great. So it was now it's called the Malaga mission, which I was mad about. It shouldn't have changed the name. Because <laughs> I thought Seville was the ultimate. But anyway, so um, I was working in a place called Alicante. I was a zone leader with my friend, Russ. who became a true friend. And so this guy had gone through many, many churches. When I met him, it was just a referral from a sister missionary that met him in a park. And I took the referral with my band that was leaving in a week leader and we knocked on the door and he was studying with the Jehovah Witnesses. And I have no problem with them. I, I have a lot of friends that are Jehovah Witnesses, but but they were really leading about a path that he was uncomfortable with. So when he, when he heard our message, it was like, wow, this is refreshing, hmm. you know, and uh, we don't have to argue. <laughs> so we went about went around this, this thing, you know, and finally at the point where he accepted baptism and the day we went to pick him up, he went to open the door. We had the font ready. There were portable fonts. We had to ship it in on a bus. It took a lot of work to get, you know, a baptism ready back then. Long story short, we run back to his house. I mean, we, we knocked on the door. He wouldn't answer. So we went to a, a telephone booth. Didn't have cell phones in the day. Call and he answered the phone, but he said, I just can't get baptized today. You know, I've met with my other friends and I'm confused. And so I can't do it today. So we arranged to go back. And we kind of started from scratch, said, let's forget about the lessons, let's forget about everything else, let's talk about what's important to him and his family, let's just show love. And the thing that I think made a difference is we decided to kneel down and pray, and he had five kids at the time, or he had four and one was expecting, and they ended up with seven. 
big family for a family in Spain. And we knelt down and we prayed, every family member and the missionaries around the circle until he felt like it was time to stop. And he says, I'm ready to get baptized. It was wow. just an amazing experience. So I think that immediately brought to mind that I wanted to baptize this guy so badly. I loved him so much. Wanted to get out of that thought with him, you know. But it was more important for him to be baptized by somebody from his branch that he could create a relationship with. Because obviously, to go, I was going to go away. I wouldn't be back for 35 years. I've been back several times since then. But it took 35 years to get back. Wow. And so he has become an amazing leader in the church. And I think he, he's paid it forward so many times to, to hundreds and hundreds of people. He's been bishop three times. I mean, he's an amazing person. So my companion I get to go back and uh, be together. We've both been with him separately with our wives. Now we get to be together, I think. I think it's going to work out. It's going to be a remarkable Oh, that's cool. Reunion. So 50 years in the church he's celebrating. Wow. Uh, 50 years in his marriage. Oh, Sorry, in his marriage. Okay. That. His anniversary. And so we're going back and he's bringing all his family together. is a big deal. But he invited his missionaries, which I thought was pretty cool. Wow. And yeah. uh, no, he's been in the member of the church since 1978. So what is that? That's 40 some years. But yeah. Wow. Wow. That's fantastic. What a story. And I just love that of you know, from that story, just like creating space to like, you know, you, you didn't push them into the font or, you know, try and, you know, <laughs> bribe them into the font or anything, but you're just, let's create space for this and breathe into it and pray about it and see where it leads us, you know, and we can, worst case, we can walk away and try another day, you know. Well, I will tell you though, we went by the up the first time. We were so worried that yeah. it would just, you know, not ever get baptized. Something would really went wrong, you know, and, uh, but after we slowed down, and he was loving back to us. He says, you know, don't worry. It's just, I'm confused. So let's get together and talk about it. And things went beautifully and he made the decision. He's never turned back, never looked back one time. Great, yeah, amazing awesome. guy. Not everybody does that. Yeah. No, I taught a lot of people in Spain that left the church. And, uh, but uh, this guy's been rock solid. He's, he's continued to inspire me my whole life. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you know, going back to the strategic influence, any other principle or concept that would, that would really be of help to church leaders? Well, so I have six spheres, which I think okay. are all very relatable to church leadership. And it starts with perspective. That's as Stephen Covey begin with the end of mind, I call it perspective. And it's about counting the costs up front, committing to something and not looking back. That stick to itiveness that we, you and I first talked about, you know, that mm -hmm. stick to your task until it sticks to you. So that, that first beginning sphere, I think it's very, very, very important. You don't get anywhere unless you have the right perspective, unless someone does it for you. The second sphere is accountability. In the church, we teach, you know, the, the importance of being honest and true and chaste and all the things we talk about. That means you're accountable and that you are responsible for what that accountability means. Next one is about, it goes into relationships. And so it's immediately applicable if you are learning how to become accountable and people then trust you that they want to follow you or have some form of relationship with you. It's just natural. All these steps are natural. From the relationships, you learn how to become, because people mandate it at that point, because they trust you. They want to bestow that influential title on you and they want you to be their leader. And so some people won't accept it, but if you do and you accept it fully saying, I assume the role, I accept the role. Then you become a leader that is loved and beloved by people. And, uh, you know, I, I've tried really hard to be a good leader in my life, but I've managed a few thousand people and I've taught thousands more. And I've had a few that have come up to me and saying I was the best leader they've ever had before. It meant mm -hmm. so much to me. 
for them to tell me that, not because I wanted to stick it in a post on LinkedIn. You know, I wanted to just know that, that I was making a difference. And to, the, and to some um, teachers that I taught when I was going to Northwestern, the teachers quorum, every one of them went on missions. I never expected that because some of them weren't ever very close to it, I didn't think. But because of the collaborative nature of our class, I think I made a difference. And every one of them called me before they went. I didn't even track them. They called me. So that leadership, I think, is so important. And then let, that final two, just quickly, next one is opportunity. Once you learn how to become a leader and you understand it and you realize it and you accept the responsibility that it's been, you've been tasked with, then there's opportunity to influence a lot of people for the right reasons. Look at what Jesus did you know, in just 33 years. I mean, no one will ever match that. But <laughs> I mean, nor should we even try. But I think that his example will never, ever go away. And it's mind-boggling to me that people want to put him in the class of a prophet or a teacher, you know, when he was uh, bigger than anything we could ever, ever imagine. And the final one is give back. I told you about that before. It's like give back. Uh, it's about helping others when you can. Sometimes you have to wait, you know, to give physical or money means, monetary means, but in the beginning, you don't have to wait. You can start from the very beginning, showing interest, listening, you know, consoling people, loving people, and you're giving big time, probably more than the money labor made. So those are my six spheres. Love it. Talk to me a little bit about accountability. I mean, I don't have the quote right in front of me, but John Maxwell, you know, the leadership yeah. author, he talks about that you never really know how good of a leader you are until you lead a volunteer organization where you don't have the you know, the levers of bonuses or salary or, uh, you know, those types of things. So what can you teach us about accountability in the context of leading in the church? Well, I have two success factors that belong to that sphere. And the first one is, is personal responsibility, accepting personal responsibility. The second one is, is, to, is to become responsible or self-reliant so that you know that you can take care of yourself and then help other people. It's like in the airplane. They tell you, put your mask on first because if you don't, have oxygen, you can't help someone else. So responsibility to me is something I learned way back when, not from a church member. I learned from my parents, okay? But I'm talking about the concept of what I call accepting personal responsibility, even when you don't think you're responsible. That's the real key here. I was driving down a freeway, all these things come in my mind, in California. I was coming back from a uh, sales appointment in LA when I lived in Los Angeles area. Coming back and I was getting close to home and all of her, suddenly I heard all these honks. Cars around me, people were honking. And I look around, people left to right. Why are they honking? They were honking at me because there was a, a person who had collapsed in his car, head down on his steering wheel, heading right towards me. And his car was going to crash with me. And so wow. I luckily saw him, got bored enough that I didn't get hit. And his car stopped and hit the median and apparently taken his foot off the gas, thankfully. And I was able to go call 911 and help this guy. But the important part, about responsibilities. I didn't cause that. That was a distraction to me at the time, but an important one. I tried to see if I could save say this guy. He was already gone, unfortunately. Mm. But I took the responsibility, even though I didn't cause it. I wasn't really responsible for that. I'm not an, uh, you know, a paramedic is what I was thinking. Yeah. Uh -huh. But I felt it was my responsibility because I was involved to take ownership for that situation. So you imagine something happens to you, whatever it is, and you don't feel responsible, but should you take ownership for it? That's really the key. The key to personal responsibility and accepting it is how you respond to it and how you react to the responsibility of what you think is at hand. Harry Truman always had that thing on his desk that said, the buck stops here. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, he actually someone gave that to him, but he liked it. So he made that kind of his, his mantra. 
but he took it seriously. And so even though something's put on your desk and you didn't cause it, you didn't start it, and you want to push it back to the person, if you can help, you should. And you should take ownership for it because otherwise you might get stuck in a rut. You might start blaming people and you can't move away or move forward until you take ownership. And so you have to in a way that helps you add, you know, help and help solve the problem, but then move on so it doesn't stick you. So one, one other really quick illustration. When I was a missionary, I remember my man and I were getting ready to go across the road in a stoplight and a crosswalk. And this car, the light went red and this car came zooming through the red light. There was a Spaniard next to us who was really upset that happened. Even though he wasn't even trying to cross the road, he was walking down the sidewalk. He went down that road with his arms like the Spaniards do, you know, <laughs> uh, cussing about that guy on, in that car for the rest of the day, maybe. You know? so, but listen, things happen. You can't let that stop you. Can't let it, you know, affect your life to the point where it disturbs what you're trying to accomplish. You have to take ownership of your situation, create a new plan and move forward. Yeah, that's pivot idea, which is what I'm talking about is important in, in the church too, because you can become overwhelmed in your duties in the church. You can be overwhelmed in um, things that happen. I've been in the, many bishoprics. I've been a brass president. I've you know, had the opportunities to help people. And sometimes it's overwhelming because you don't know how to solve it. You're not a psychologist. You don't know how you know, to solve this monetary problem, or you do the best you can and you find other people. Your job is to help find other people that can help that person. But yeah, anyway, I hope that helps a little bit. Yeah. So. Sort of the sense of like uh, having that accountability, you know, being the person who wants to take on accountability and live up to it. Is there anything you would say as far as like someone standing in front of elders quorum where they feel like apathy is, is slowly taking over everybody's, everybody's <laughs> life in the church? <laughs> Uh, and, uh, I, and is there any way to stimulate in accountability in others or is it uh, sort of their personal journey there? I mean, so number one example, my mother and my dad, I mean, people I know that I trust, I love are examples. And that doesn't go unnoticed, especially if it's a regular part of their practice, right? And so what a leader should do in a quorum like that, I think, should try to bring out examples and keep people in the quorum, not just talking about mm. yourself all the time, which is your first thought is, I always tell you, tell personal experiences because it makes a big difference. And yes, it's true, but I think it's more interesting when you bring variety into that with other people in the group. The more mm -hmm. you can, as a facilitator, again, back to that idea, bring out you know, what capability of that group what you have in front of you is, their examples, their ideas, you know, their agreements. Then you start a discussion between them and you can kind of step away. That's the cool part about teaching that I love. So I think that's how you do it. And I think that... Uh, you know, I, it doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to someone if there's a problem, if there's a question, answer the question. I have hecklers in my speeches all the time. People come up with something to give you some hard, you know, question because they, <laughs> they just want to give you a hard time. And I want to be like Jordan Peterson. I don't know if you know who Jordan Peterson is, mm -hmm. but that guy, you cannot stump that guy. He's going to come <laughs> back with apart. a mind-boggling response that you could just write. He's, he's just a script. You just... You want to record the guy and, and there's a book every time. He's amazing. Steve McCovey was a lot like that too. So, Yeah. I really appreciate that tactic of like sharing examples because I think we hear, you know, first it starts with example. So we think, okay, as the elders quorum president, I'm going to be really accountable to all things I've been asked to do. And hopefully those around me start noticing just how good I am being at doing these things and then naturally they'll do them. But it's a few more steps where you're highlighting individuals maybe in the quorum who are having these dynamic experience with, with ministering or, you know, whatever it is with the gospel principle or with being a dad or what, you know, and highlighting that not to 
then shame everybody. They should do the same. But you're just highlighting it, saying, wow, that's fantastic. Tell us about it. And that example will stir something in another five, 10 people. And then you'll have more examples down the road that slowly but surely they're seeing the the mission and vision in all this. Yeah, I must prefer those kind of discussions versus here are the 10 questions. I just handed them out and read the scripture and then give me a response. Mm -hmm. I'd say, well, why don't you give me an example of how that applies to you in your life? Or anybody can think of an example how that might be applicable versus here's my theoretical, you know, theological <laughs> response, which can be good. I, you know, I think those are good too because we don't know all the answers, but I think examples help you see that it can be possible to accomplish those things. I mean, we're, yeah. we're commanded to be perfect. I have no idea how I would ever, ever get past all the trespasses and the, you know, the problems that I have. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm way, way far away from the dock as Bob says, I'm what about Bob, you know. <laughs> I just don't think you can do it without people relating to things that others have done so you can see the possibility, the potential yeah. uh, in doing it. Yeah. And, and really creating that space. I mean, I worry sometimes, you know, just tying in the context of Elders Quorum Relief Society, sometimes we, we jump into that lesson a little bit too quickly, right? Rather than really letting the, the quorum culture develop and sharing experiences and talking. And, and then, yeah, sure, we'll get to the conference talk. You know, we'll get there and it's important, but we don't have to jump right into it, you know, step one. So, yeah, I agree with you. I, I think that uh, a question up front should be interesting that it's not always the expected question. Sometimes you can have, kind of a controversial question that still can be related to the gospel and you don't want to get into a fight with people, <laughs> like they do in church basketball, you know, but it's always amazing to me that you can get into a fight, you know, in a church sports event. But, but I think it's important that people learn how to uh, share experiences and not be afraid because a lot of people won't speak up because mm -hmm. they don't know how to answer that theological question. But if you give an experience and an example that, oh, I can tell you something that happened to me, right? you know? And people right. might, for the first time in weeks or months, actually, you know, contribute. Otherwise, they don't. You have the same 10. I always talk about the SDP in the church, you know, same 10 people. <laughs> yep. In the quorums, it might be the same three people, you know, or we decided, <laughs> same two people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it seems like every context has its own STP, right? Like, uh, whether yep. you're, there's the three people that always give the comments, there's the 10 people that show up, at, always show up at the, you know, the... Yep. The canning assignment or whatever it is, right? And that's wonderful. You don't want to, yeah, everyone yeah. want to discount that, but, right. but we want more people to contribute, right? Yeah, that definitely makes it easier. Any other point, principle, or concept to quote from your book you want to make sure you fit in here before we wrap up? Or did we? I'm, I'm going to put a plug in for my new book that I don't have yet. Oh. I'm actually writing a new book. Awesome. So in success factor eight of my book, Power of Strategic Influence, it says, identify and leverage your competitive competencies. Hmm. And so what that basically means is that to become a confident leader, you have to become skillful in many things, not just one thing. But there might be one thing that is your go-to thing that you could call your superpower. That's what I like to call it. Mm. It'll become your legacy. I spoke in Chicago uh, to a group of leaders uh, a few weeks ago. And the first question I asked them, I said, have Andrew, any of you ever been in the presence of, of greatness before? Have you ever met someone who was the GOAT, you know, the best of the best of something? And I had, you know, those two people in the crowd that raised their hand. Yeah, I'd, I've been there. I said, well, I don't care that you actually did it, but if you've been inspired by someone, the question I have for you is, did, did you do something with it? Did it just inspire you and it made you feel good? Or did you actually take it constructively and do something with that inspiration that influenced you, that impacted you at that moment? And did you do it soon? Because if you don't do it soon, you'll forget what inspired you. Remember, there was something good they said, mm -hmm. you will not remember it, especially a week or two later. So you immediately, maybe you write it down, you immediately try to teach it, 
And then third, you know, how do you put that into practice, into your own life? So that's what I'm at all about right now is how do we become masters of our future, which means becoming competent in many things that we care about. Benjamin Franklin uh, taught him a valuable lesson when he was uh, on this earth. Remarkable person who at the end of his life said, I never perfected what I wanted to perfect. Mm. I mean, he, he was so critical of himself. He had 13 vices that he, he wanted to turn into virtues. And his only goal in life was to master his character. Most people want to master one little thing. He wanted to master a category, this guy. Yeah. It was amazing. So I think that's important to lead by example, but to learn that if you want to become a person that's influential, do it through example, things you've learned, things you've mastered, things that you've become competent in so that you can actually help people in many ways. You don't have to become perfect in every way, and, and certainly Christ was, but you know the rest of us are just trying to become okay at a lot of things. But you might become really good at one thing and people come to you and you become you know, really important to people in that aspect of your yeah. life for the rest of your life. And I imagine those things are different for different people, right? Or for different leaders, right? Yeah. So I did a survey. I should tell you, I did a survey of hundreds of people in the United States for my first book to get those competencies and I came up with the top 10 list. I've continued to do that for the last two years. Now I've surveyed over a thousand people worldwide and uh, we came up with a top 40 list. I can have a top 50 list, but I like 40 better because of the music industry. <laughs> so because of Benjamin Franklin, because he had 13 virtues that fit perfectly into one year, four times, he could practice, go through all, four, all 13. So I have a list of top 13, I call it competencies. You can take my 13 or you can take any that you think are important, but I give a list of 40 so you can kind of pick and choose. Uh, even though, oh, cool. you know, a thousand people said these 13 are the best, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I meant sometimes you see in the church where you see the, the superpowers that were in that Relief Society president right before you were called and then you're called and you're, you sort of beat yourself up that you don't have those superpowers, but to recognize you have other superpowers and yeah. you should lean into those, right? Yeah. I mean, um, who was it? President Granite? My dad met President Granite when he was a little boy. My dad grew up in Hinkley, Utah. They'd build a new church. We just got baptized. My dad had gone on a horse. My parents, like his parents, on a farm, they couldn't go to church that day. They had some problems on the, on the farm. My dad got on his horse, went to church, tied up his horse, went in, sat on the back row because it was a, little, he was a little bit late. And then another man came in and sat right next to him. He ended up being President Heber J. Grant. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, he wanted to become good at calligraphy, at singing, all these great things. Like Benjamin Franklin, he had these things he wanted to acquire. It. And so you, people admired him for that. Yeah. Apparently, he was a terrible singer before he learned how to sing. Yeah. But he learned how to, you know, sing and, and actually be gratified by his skills. Yeah. So. Same with his penmanship, right? I mean, you, and, and his penmanship. Yeah. You look at his signature. Uh, wow. Impressive. You know, he, <laughs> he is impressive. I, and I've, I've lost that skill. I was there when I was a kid at, uh, at writing than I have today because well, I type for me. Now we tap on, uh, on little screens and uh, unfortunately. So. Awesome. Well, thanks Gary, for all those great questions. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, Gary, this has been fantastic. Really appreciate the perspective, the research you've done, the experience you've gained, and glad you've, you're putting it in, in pages of a book and whatnot. And obviously, people can go to Amazon. Is that the best place to to find the power of strategic influence? You can buy it directly from me if you want it signed. You can come to GaryCLady.com. Okay. And I don't divulge uh, the, what this middle C stands for because it was my dad's middle name. He didn't like it. He gave it to me for some reason. I didn't like it. <laughs> But GaryCLaney.com, you can go there or Amazon, of course. But if you want to sign, I don't charge a lot to do that. You do it and I'll ship it to you. It includes shipping. Okay. Uh, yeah. You can also go to the, actually the title of the book, The Power of Strategic Influence.com. 
Right. And then the, hopefully by this fall or early spring next year, I'll have another book out. So Awesome. Well, Gary, the last question I have for you, uh, as you reflect on your time as a leader, how has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Oh my gosh. I mean, uh, the ultimate desire to become a leader is to be like him, right? Because he didn't have to push, compel, force people to do anything. They followed him. I mean, that's the true sense of a follower because of his teaching, because of his example, because of his love. I like this this song that wasn't written by anybody in our church, but it's called, I Can Only Imagine. It's my favorite. Oh, yeah. Song. I love that song. By Mercy Me. And, uh, you know, you can imagine what it'd be like to be in his presence again someday. I mean, that's, I want to help lead people to that presence. That's it. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us your perspective or questions. If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. Remember, up your teaching game by listening to the David Farnsworth presentation by visiting leadingsaints.org slash 14. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.